Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. I'm so happy that you've chosen to be with us on this Father's Day this morning. Just one word of caution to all the medical personnel. I ate a donut this morning at the Father's breakfast. So if I hit the floor, don't let them put paddles on me. It's not a heart attack, it's sugar. It seems that typically on Mother's Day in our churches, we applaud the mothers and on Father's Day, we scold the fathers for not doing a better job. Well, I, wanna, I don't wanna do that today. And although I don't feel compelled to preach a Mother's Day and Father's Day message each year, I have this year with the realization that this will be my final Mother's Day and Father's Day messages as pastor of this church. So I wanna take this opportunity to speak to you this morning on the very important subject of the fatherhood of God. What we know about human fathers and what we have experienced as children will reflect how eagerly or how apprehensively we approach the concept of the fatherhood of God. If we had a great human father, we gladly embrace the biblical picture of God as our heavenly father. But some have grown up with fathers who came far short of the ideal. Fathers who were cold or distant, angry or critical, whose own struggles sapped all of their energy. Those kinds of things can impact our ability to relate to God as our Heavenly Father. If your father was abusive, emotionally distant or physically absent, it may take a concentrated effort to overcome the distortions and misconceptions and come to the truth about our Father God. Because of what they have experienced, some people turn to their Father in heaven looking for a parent who was different from their biological father. I think David captures that sense for us where he wrote in Psalm 27 and verse 10, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. The importance of understanding our relationship with God as our Father cannot be overestimated. Author and theologian J.I. Packer wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this thought does not prompt and control his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity at all. Understanding the father-child relationship with God can provide us with a profound sense of being loved. Everett Fulham, a missionary to a remote tribe in Nigeria, relates the salvation experience of one of his local natives the native revealed some profound theological understanding when he spoke of the awesomeness of his experience with God when he said, behind this universe stands one God, not a great number of warring spirits as we had always believed, but one God, and that one God loves me. I believe that we should all share in the wonder that this moment, this man felt that the God of the universe loves us. It is through this sense of being loved that we can come to truly understand forgiveness and the wholeness that comes from being loved and forgiven. Indeed, this is so important. It is the dividing line 
that separates Christianity from all the other religions in the world. Christianity is the only religion, if I can use that term, that even envisions the possibility of a personal relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. There are just three simple but profound questions I want us to address today. First of all, what does it mean to be a child of God? In response to being asked by his disciples how to pray in Luke chapter 11, Jesus taught his disciples to begin their prayer by saying, Our Father who is in heaven. In two words, our Father, Jesus profoundly changed the way people looked at God. It's hard for us to understand just how amazing this concept was. But the Jewish society of that day to which Jesus spoke thought of God as being distant and unapproachable in his holiness. To be taught that God was the Father was revolutionary. But Jesus is not just saying we should begin our prayer with the words, our Father, but with the understanding that God really is our Father in heaven. He's not saying we should just merely say the words, but that we should believe he is our Father and we can relate to him as a Father. What Jesus is teaching here is pretty dramatic. The word that Jesus almost exclusively uses for Father is the word Abba. It is really an untranslated Arabic word. Their word was not a formal word, but a common Arabic word which a, which a child would use to address his father. The word Abba. Of course, everyone used that word, but no one under any circumstances used it in connection with God. Abba means something like daddy but with a more reverent touch than we use it today. It meant something like dearest father. The fact that God is our dearest father is to be the conditional foundational awareness of our prayer. Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians in Galatians chapter four and verse six, and because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into, it, into your hearts crying out, Abba, Father. Wrapped up in the expression, our Father, is a new dimension in the intimate communication with God. The same intimacy that exists between a child and their father is to exist between them and God. The beginning of effective prayer is the recognition that God possesses a father's heart, a father's love, a father's strength, a father's concern for the best interest of his children. You know, if we wanted to set up a meeting with a high-ranking government official, we'd have to go through proper channels, make arrangements days, if not weeks, in advance. But when I wanted to talk to my dad, all I had to do was drop by the house or pick up a telephone and call him. Why? Why did I have that kind of access? Because we were family. It's impossible to come to God as our Father except that we are born into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. It is for this reason that Alan Redpath in his book on the Lord's Prayer says that the Lord's Prayer should be called the family prayer because it's based on a relationship with God through faith in Christ and can only be uttered by those 
who are in the family. Now understanding what it means to be a child of God, we move on to how does, how does one become a child of God? How are we to understand this? In what sense are we the sons and daughters of God? Well, some say the fatherhood of God is, is universal, that every man, from the fact that he was created by God, is of necessity a child of God, son or daughter. Therefore, every man has the right to approach the throne of God and say, our Father, which art in heaven. Unfortunately, that is not true. As many believe, being born into the human race does not mean that you are part of the family of God. God is every man's creator, but he's not every man's father. The Bible uses two word pictures to explain the process of how one becomes a part of the family of God. The first, born again. Jesus describes this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3. And then the second term is the word adoption that Paul uses to explain. Both analogies help us to understand that the frequent use of the term son of God or child of God. So if you would turn to John chapter 3 for a moment, the picture of being born again is given to explain how, how we gain eternal life. It is being born again that we become a part of the family of God. The man Nicodemus, we are introduced to in John chapter 3. He was a good man. He was a religious man. He was a moral man. And yet Jesus says to him in John chapter 3 in verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We would have to say, understand Nicodemus was a Jew, and as a Jew, he believed himself to be, by his lineage of Abraham, chosen of God. But although he was a Jew, although he was a Pharisee, although he was a member of the Sanhedrin and a highly respected teacher of the, New, of the Old Testament scripture, yet Jesus says to Nicodemus that that was not enough to get into the family of God. With one sentence, Jesus swept away everything that Nicodemus had lived by and turned this man's world upside down. Nicodemus had never heard such a thing before. This means that everything that Nicodemus had built his life on means absolutely nothing. Jesus tells this remarkably good man, if you want to get to heaven... If you want a relationship with God that begins now and lasts forever, then you must go about it in a totally different way. You will have to be born again. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can't do it, Nicodemus, but God can. He can make you a new man, and he wants to do that for you if only you will allow him. Well, there's two things about being born again that we must understand. First of all, being born again is universal. Jesus makes it clear that this is what he is saying applies not only to Nicodemus, but to everyone. In the Greek, there is a distinction between a singular and a plural form of you. When Jesus said, you must be born again, he uses the plural form. It's much easier to see in the King James Version. It says, marvel not that I have, seen, I have said unto thee, Singular, talking to Nicodemus, 
that ye, all of you, everyone, must be born again. The point is that this is not a private principle which only applied to Nicodemus, but a truth about how each of us becomes a part of the family of God. Not only is being born again universal, but being born again is not an option. We also need to use to observe the use of the word must in this verse. Jesus is not saying that being born again is a good, just a good idea for some people. It's not just something that he's recommending. It's an imperative. The other basic description, not born again, but adoption. Whereas being born again refers primarily to the means of Entering God's family, adoption highlights the principles of this new relationship. You may have been adopted. You may have adopted a child yourself. Or you may have been raised in a home that included adopted children. If any of these things are true, you probably have a better understanding of the biblical teaching about adoption than those of us who have not had those experiences. When, ta- when Paul talks about adoption... He's not referring to the Old Testament because there's not much about adoption in the Old Testament. Rather, he's talking about the Roman practice of his own day. Paul explains adoption in Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. In Roman culture, The adopted person lost all his responsibilities of his old family and he gained all the rights of a legitimate child in his new family. This verse tells us that we have been delivered from the bondage of fear and that we have been adopted into the family of God. The word adoption means to take place as a son. The picture of adoption is a beautiful picture of what God does for the Christian. In that, the adopted son was adopted permanently. You could not be adopted today and disinherited tomorrow. He became a son of the father forever. He was eternally secure as a son. And secondly, the adopted son immediately had all the rights and legitimates son would have in this new family. Adoption not only gave one a new name, it also meant the old life was gone. The adopted son was looked on on as a new person, just as we see in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that tells us that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. So that the old debts and obligations that connected with our former family are canceled out and abolished as if they never existed. When we come to Jesus... We are taken out of our old sinful life and we are adopted into the family of Jesus. We have a new father. Now in Jesus, we are brought into a close relationship with our heavenly father, a relationship so close that we are permitted to address address him as Abba. Not only are we heirs of God, but we are made joint heirs with Jesus. Literally, we are given an equal share in the wealth of our father. Under Jewish law, the eldest son 
would have been given a double portion of his family's wealth, his father's wealth. However, under Roman law, all sons were treated equally. Having established then how one becomes the child of God, we move on to what are the obligations of being a child of God. Well, what do you expect of your own children? If you listen long enough, you're sure to hear stories about how children have failed to live up to their parents' expectations and how it broke their hearts. We've all heard of children who, when they finished school and moved out of the family home, they started their own lives and they never seen visit or at least call anymore. We have heard about children whose choices in the way that they conduct their lives seem to have turned their back on everything they were taught at home, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. So what did God desire of us? First of all, he desires our love. Jesus once faced a lawyer who asked him the question, what is the most important commandment in the law? And Jesus responded in Matthew 22, 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Like even human parents, nothing pleases the heart of God more than receiving the love of their children. Now let me reflect for just a moment. Most of the time when our children come to us and they put their arm around our shoulder and say, Dad, I love you, what do you know is coming? What's your question? What do you want? What do you want? But to have our children tell us that they love us at some unprompted time when they're not asking for anything brings us great joy. We should never be so big in our estimation that we do not come to our Heavenly Father and say, I love you. Secondly, he deserves our honor. At the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi asked the leaders of Israel some soul-searching questions. He said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? If I am the master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. We have been given the privilege of addressing the creator of the universe by the most intimate of terms, Abba. But we must never forget he is the sovereign Lord of all he created. Everything we have and everything we are is because of him. He desires our thanks and our worship. The third thing is he wants us to be like him. Now we know genetics is involved here to a certain extent. In every human family, there's some resemblance passed on down through the genealogical line. You see the pictures here? The one on the left is my grandson. The one on the right is me. <laughs> Poor kid. <laughs> he don't know what's coming yet. Once in a visit with my uncle, one of the things he said really struck me. He said, Johnny, the older you get, the more you look like your dad. At this stage in my life, I took that as a huge compliment. I hope that is true of all of us. As Christians, the older we get, the further down the road we've traveled, the more we resemble our Heavenly Father. The Apostle Paul said, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. I think author and pastor Erwin Lutzer 
catches it very well when he says, when a believer says, I am the son of God, we should expect that his life will at least have some trace of the character of God. Let me close this morning with a story. A seminary professor was vacationing with his wife in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. One morning they were eating breakfast at a little restaurant, hoping to just enjoy a little quiet family meal. And while they're waiting for their food, they noticed a rather distinguished-looking, white-haired gentleman moving from table to table, visiting with the guest. The professor leaned over and said to his wife, I hope he doesn't come over here. But sure enough, he did come over to their table. He said, where are you folks from? Oklahoma, they answered. Well, great to have you here in Tennessee. What do you do for a living? He says, well, I teach at a seminary. And so you teach preachers how to preach. Well, I've got a great story for you. And with that, the gentleman sat down and began to tell them the story. The professor kind of groaned inwardly and thought to himself, great, just what I need, another preacher story. The man started, see the mountain over there? Not far from the base of that mountain, there was a little boy born to an unwed mother. He had a hard time growing up because every place he went, he was asked the same question. Hey boy, who's your daddy? That was a particularly hurtful question because although he knew who his father was, he had never married his mother. And to make things even worse, born in the South in the years following the Civil War, his father was a physician who had served with the Union Army. Yet as the story goes, when he was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to his church. He would always go in late and slip out early to avoid hearing the question, who's your daddy? But one day, the new preacher said the benediction so fast, he got caught and he had to walk out with the crowd. Just about the time he got to the back door, the new preacher, not knowing the situation, put his hand on his shoulder and asked him, son, who's your daddy? The whole church got deathly quiet. He could feel every eye in the church looking in. Now everyone would finally know the answer to the question, who's your daddy? The new preacher, though, sensed the situation around him using discernment that the, only the Holy Spirit could give and said to the little boy, wait, wait, wait a minute. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance now. You're a child of God. With that, he patted the boy on the shoulder and he said, boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. The boy smiled for the first time in a long time and he walked out the door a changed person. He never again faced that question with the same trepidation. When anybody asked him from then on, who's your daddy? He would say, I'm a child of God. The distinguished gentleman got up from the table and said, isn't that a great story? And the professor responded that it was indeed a really great story. The man turned to leave and he said, you know, being told that when I was one of God's children, he changed everything and he walked away. The seminary professor and his wife were stunned. He called the waitress over and he asked her, who, do you know who that man was who was just left our table, had been sitting here? He said, the waitress grinned and said, of course, everybody knows him. His name is Ben Hooper. He's the former governor of the state of Tennessee. Being told that he was a child of God changed everything. Knowing that about ourselves can change everything.
Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to come and know that you are our Heavenly Father. That we can find strength in you. We find forgiveness in you. We find acceptance in you. And we know that you have our best interests always on your heart. Father, if there's anyone here today that's suffering, some may be suffering because they don't experience that knowledge that you are their Heavenly Father. Help them to know that they can today by accepting what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. He paid for their sin. He gave them the privilege of being born again. Help them to recognize that they are sinners just like everyone else in this place. And all that they need to do is turn from their sin and ask for forgiveness. Father, sometimes we walk away from that understanding of our relationship with you. We don't put the value on it that we ought to. Convict our hearts today. Help it to change us. Change us in what we think. Change us in what we do. Father, we just want this time to respond to whatever you've done to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.